welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Nice to see you all again. If you haven't gotten a chance to check out my interview with Laura Kelly, give it a listen. We get a bit more vulnerable than an emotionally stunted millennial man cares to get, and you might just get some free wellness coaching along the way. And actually, dear listeners, I'm taking a half week off next week in the spirit of wellness. So for the decisions published on Wednesday through Friday, you'll be in the outrageously capable hands of Chris Rickard. Chris is an immigration consultant at KKTP who before that served as senior policy counsel at the ACLU National Political Advocacy Department. And before that, he clerked for a Ninth Circuit judge and then worked as a staff attorney in the Ninth for like seven years. The dude's qualified. But you've got me for this week, so enjoy these eight cases. I've placed the wins at the beginning and at the end, with a bunch of losses in the middle that you've got to get through first. First up, if ever so briefly, is USA v. Rodriguez Flores, published by the Fifth Circuit late on Friday, February 11th, 2022. It's a long episode this week, and the Fifth Circuit published this one late Friday night as it's been doing recently. Not great for my sanity. So, without getting too much into the details, know this, Fifth Circuit Crimmigration Practitioners. In this case, arising in the Sentence Enhancement Illegal Reentry Context, the Fifth Circuit reaffirmed post the Supreme Court's Mathis decision that sexual assault of an adult under Texas Penal Code Section 22.011A1 and Subsection B are indivisible and that the crime is not an aggravated felony crime of violence under INA Section 101A43F. Good discussions about means versus elements and the persuasiveness of state court decisions on divisibility. Take it in, Fifth Circuit Warriors. And that is USA v. Rodriguez Flores.
Next, provided with a bit more notice, is Exguna Garcia v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on February 8, 2022. This is a procedurally complicated one about asylum and related relief. Ms. Exguna Garcia is a Guatemalan-born indigenous K'iche woman who came to the United States when she was 16 in 2002. After being detained in a workplace raid in 2007, Ms. Exguna Garcia applied for relief that included asylum and withholding of removal before an immigration judge. Don't ever let anyone tell you that we all live similar lives. Her case bounced around between two IJs and the BIA, but ultimately, the agency deemed the asylum application time-barred, that Ms. Exguna Garcia hadn't suffered past persecution in Guatemala, and that she didn't have a well-founded fear of future persecution or torture. It gets a bit confusing, but essentially Ms. Exguna Garcia had initially applied for asylum based on mistreatment and harassment committed against her and her family in Guatemala by Ladino men and other non-indigenous persons in Guatemala due to her Mayan identity. The IJ initially denied that and the BIA remanded. If I'm a betting man and simply reading the tea leaves, Harvard got involved on remand, maybe, maybe not, and submitted a whole bunch of new evidence and new testimony that in fact, quote, she had been raped as a child by a Ladino man and that Ladino men had attacked her and her cousin, end quote. A psychological report was also submitted corroborating that, and it was argued that it should excuse the one-year filing deadline based on a showing that Ms. Exguna Garcia's age at arrival and her psychological state constituted extraordinary circumstances under the regulations that would excuse her untimely asylum filing. The second go-around with all that evidence, the IJ and then the BIA found Ms. Exguna Garcia not credible, in part because of the fact that she didn't mention the rape and other issues the first time around. The agency also faulted her for not providing corroborating evidence, such as an affidavit from her mother about the rape. And due to the adverse credibility finding and weird procedural posture of the case, the IJ and the BIA didn't really consider all of the new evidence. And the First Circuit disagreed with the agency's decisions. See, the Real ID Act implemented in 2004 instituted a statute that states, in pertinent part, that where the IJ, quote, determines that the applicant should provide evidence that corroborates otherwise credible testimony, such evidence must be provided unless the applicant does not have the evidence and cannot reasonably obtain the evidence, end quote. Many circuits, and most notably the Ninth Circuit and Ren B. Holder, have held that this means that if an IJ is going to deny or find a non-citizen not credible based on a lack of corroborating evidence, the IJ must notify the non-citizen in advance and provide an opportunity for the non-citizen to obtain that corroborating evidence, or at least explain why they cannot. Here, the First Circuit noted the circuit split about this Real ID Act provision and Ren V. Holder, and declined to pick a side. So no gong. And that's because, according to the First Circuit, even without the advance notice of the corroborating evidence needed, quote, the IJ and the BIA committed the more fundamental error of failing to provide Ms. Exguna Garcia with even an opportunity to explain why she could not reasonably obtain the required evidence, a procedure that is mandated by both the BIA's and the First Circuit's precedent, end quote. And that's the BIA's 2015 decision in matter of lack. Here, it appears that the IJ didn't mention the need for corroborating evidence on the rape issue at all until the IJ denied the claim. That's a clear violation of matter of lack and First Circuit precedent. Oh, and by the way, the BIA can't clean up the error on appeal. Quote, 
it is the IJ, not the BIA, that must enter the explanation into the record, end quote, regarding the need for corroborating evidence or whether it can be reasonably obtained. And in this case, for sure, where the lack of corroborating evidence was part of the adverse credibility finding itself, the IJ's failure to comply with matter of lack takes down the whole adverse credibility finding. Kind of like the Alam v. Garland line of cases percolating in the Ninth Circuit, that en banc decision discussed on episode 72 of the podcast. Because adverse credibility is the totality of the circumstances analysis, if you take down one circumstance, the totality very well may fall. That being said, the First Circuit agreed with Oil that it lacked jurisdiction to review whether the IG and BIA erred in their refusal to excuse the one-year filing deadline for asylum. The First Circuit noted that a statute expressly takes away its jurisdiction to review such things absent a related constitutional claim or question of law. And here, although the argument was well written, the First Circuit believed that at base, it challenged the IJ and BIA's finding and weighing of evidence on the issue. That the First Circuit cannot review, at least when it comes to excusing the one-year filing deadline for asylum. Don't like that one-year deadline? Contact your congressman or woman. The First Circuit also didn't disturb the agency's significant disregard of the psychological report because the agency did consider it, but gave it diminished weight for a variety of reasons. But at the end of the day, the case is getting remanded, and Ms. Escuna Garcia is getting the opportunity to prove again why she should be permitted to remain in the U.S. Indeed, even Oil agrees that the IJ and BIA failed to consider important evidence regarding the withholding of removal claim. Congratulations, Nancy J. Kelly, John Wilshire Carrera, Harvey Kaplan, and the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinic for the win. One more thing to remember. So I guess the Ren v. Holder circuit split issue remains pending in the first. Doesn't IJ need to, as Ren holds, quote, give the applicant notice of the corroboration that is required and an opportunity to either produce the requisite corroborative evidence or to explain why that evidence is not reasonably available, end quote? Indeed, the Ninth Circuit held in Wren that, quote, a requirement that something must be provided even before notice is given would raise even more due process concerns, end quote. This First Circuit decision plainly does not go as far as Wren and the line of cases that have agreed with it in other circuits. But there's a lot of Wren logic in this decision, possibly for use the next go-around. Although I can only imagine Harvard was trying to get a Wren-type decision out of the First Circuit this time. And that is Excuna Garcia v. Garland. Sticking with the First Circuit, we have Thomas v. Garland, published on February 8, 2022. This case is about discretionary relief. Mr. Thomas is from Jamaica, entered the U.S. as a tourist in 2016, and overstayed his visa. It appears he found love and married a U.S. citizen but it also appears that in 2019, he was arrested for possession of marijuana in violation of Connecticut General Statute Section 21A-279A1, possession of a controlled substance with intent to sell, and possession of a controlled substance within 1,500 feet of a school in violation of some other Connecticut statutes. He was placed in removal proceedings where he was deemed removable. Remember, he overstayed his visa. But based on his marriage to a U.S. citizen, he applied to adjust status to that of an LPR under INA Section 245A. 
However, a conviction for or admission to having committed a law relating to a controlled substance makes a non-citizen inadmissible and ineligible to adjust status. And while INA Section 212H waives many grounds of inadmissibility, the controlled substance-related grounds that it waives are exceedingly narrow and definitely wouldn't encompass an intent to sell. These convictions also might provide reasons to believe that Mr. Thomas is a drug trafficker, another inadmissibility provision, and an unwaivable one at that. If I was acting like DHS, which I never do. But it doesn't appear that DHS made those arguments at the hearing. And remember, there is no conviction. It appears that the charges were pending at the time of the IJ's decision. Mr. Thomas testified at his individual hearing that he didn't know that he had drugs in his car, and he claimed that the bags, heat sealer for those bags, and scale police found when they searched his home were used by his wife to, quote, prepare and freeze meat, end quote. But the police report indicated otherwise, and Mr. Thomas didn't object to its admission into the record. Specifically, that report stated, quote, when Mr. Thomas was pulled over, he told the police that he had two pounds of marijuana in the car, end quote. Not great. The IJ believed the police report and found Mr. Thomas not credible about the incident and his arrest. Despite Mr. Thomas having a U.S. citizen wife, child, and other family members in the U.S., and despite there being other equities, the IJ concluded that the ongoing drug charges and police report, which had some other bad facts as well following a related criminal investigation and tip from a confidential informant, weighed against adjustment of status. The IJ therefore denied as a matter of discretion. Now, the BIA reviews such discretionary denials de novo, an excellent standard of review for appellate challengers, but the BIA affirmed the IJ. The First Circuit does not review discretionary findings de novo and affirm the BIA. As I always mention, it's hard if not impossible, depending on the circumstances, to even get a circuit to overturn a purely discretionary finding. Mr. Thomas therefore argued first that it was, quote, fundamentally unfair, end quote, for the IJ to rely on the police report where he hadn't been convicted of any crime. And that was a legal challenge that the First Circuit believed it could properly address. But on the merits, there's a long line of cases holding otherwise. If admissible and reliable, IJs can rely on police reports in their discretionary determinations. Mr. Thomas also argued that the agency violated his Fifth Amendment due process rights by holding the removal proceedings before his criminal proceedings had concluded, and by relying on documents from those criminal proceedings. I like the argument. But the First Circuit also noted that Mr. Thomas himself agreed to testify in the removal proceedings and did not object to the admission of the police report. Putting that aside, in a big blow to constitutional challenges, the First Circuit also states that Mr. Thomas, quote, fails to explain how he had a protected liberty interest in the discretionary form of relief from removal that he voluntarily sought, adjustment of status, end quote. So, and not to expand on the First Circuit's holding, the court appears to be saying that as Mr. Thomas is himself requesting to remain in the U.S. by seeking adjustment of status, which IJs have the discretion to deny or not, Mr. Thomas can't be said to have a constitutional right to obtaining adjustment of status, because IJs have broad authority to deny it. And without a constitutional right in the first place, Mr. Thomas's constitutional rights can't be violated. Perhaps that's what the court is saying. Mr. Thomas therefore lost his case. Police reports, anyone? (laughs) 
Had Mr. Thomas challenged the admissibility of the police report, he might have found support eventually on petition for review in the First Circuit, because a couple of weeks ago, the first went in bonk and published Diaz Ortiz v. Garland. Remember that case about the gang databases in Massachusetts? Well, in that case, the full First Circuit also said that if a non-citizen challenges the admissibility of a police report, and if an IJ intends to rely on it anyway, the IJ must first, quote, determine that the report is reliable and that its use would not be fundamentally unfair, end quote. The IJ must make that finding and presumably explain why a document is fundamentally fair. And who knows? That might require DHS to actually call the police officers to swear to the reliability and the authenticity of their police report. And who knows? DHS might not want to do that. And that is Thomas V. Garland. Next up is Hesso V. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on February 9th, 2022. This case is about in absentia motions to reopen. Mr. Hesso is a native of Syria, but a citizen of Iraq, admitted into the U.S. as a refugee in 2000. He became a lawful permanent resident in 2008 and applied for citizenship in 2016. Okay, where are we going with this? Ah, turns out he had several convictions, including drug convictions, and that he failed to disclose them in his citizenship application. Not only did USCIS believe that that made him ineligible to naturalize because it indicated that he lacked good moral character, a citizenship requirement, by the way, for all you amoral U.S. citizen listeners, but USCS believed that it made him removable, so it initiated removal proceedings to take away his green card and deport him to Iraq. Be careful when applying for citizenship. DHS alleged that at least one of the convictions made him removable under INA Section 237A2BI for being a violation of a law relating to a controlled substance. To kick off the proceedings, DHS mailed Mr. Hesso a notice to appear that, and this is just going to astonish regular listeners, contained the date, time, and location of his first removal hearing. They do exist. DHS mailed the NTA to a certain address, but Mr. Hesso didn't appear for his hearing. He was ordered removed to Iraq in absentia, and the court mailed that order to the same address. Mr. Hesso filed a motion to reopen the next year, claiming that he didn't receive the notices because he had moved addresses. Indeed, he had moved to a new state before DHS mailed him the NTA. He submitted his own sworn affidavit to prove it, and an unsworn letter from his brother-in-law, who he said that he had gone to live with. The immigration judge denied the motion, finding it, quote, curious that Mr. Hesso just happened to be living in another state when the notice was mailed, end quote. The IJ had, quote, too many questions, end quote, and so denied the motion. After all, said the IJ, there is a presumption under immigration law that NTAs and notices of hearings sent by regular mail reach their recipient. The BIA affirmed the denial of the motion to reopen, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed the BIA. True, the presumption of delivery is weaker when the mail is uncertified, as all NTAs and notices of hearing are, and a non-citizen's, quote, affidavit and other relevant evidence, end quote, may rebut the presumption. But the Eighth Circuit agreed that there were too many holes and not enough proof in this case, including, say, other proof that Mr. Hesso really did live at a given address out of state during all times material. 
This is pretty important because Mr. Hesso conceded that he returned to reside permanently at that first address that he claimed he didn't live at during the time when the notices were sent. With these questions, the court held that Mr. Hesso had failed to meet his burden to reopen. So the court affirmed the denial of his motion to reopen. And that is Hesso v. Garland. Next up is Eredia, the Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on February 11, 2022. This is a unique and complicated case about admissibility. Mr. Eredia is from Nigeria. He was admitted to the United States in 1997 on a tourist visa, which he overstayed. Later, he was granted advance parole, left the United States, returned in November 2006 with that previously approved advance parole, and was paroled into the United States. The parole was valid until November 2007. Mr. Erdia overstayed the parole, and in 2011, DHS served him with a notice to appear, charging him as removable under INA Section 212A7AII as an individual who, quote, at the time of application for admission, is not in possession of a valid unexpired immigrant visa, reentry permit, border crossing card, or other valid entry document, end quote. Mr. Aradia only challenged his removability. He didn't apply for any relief from removal. It's a bit confusing, as immigration law so often is. Since the immigration law change in 1997, we've called the determination of whether a non-citizen should or should not have to leave the U.S. removability. But there are two sections for removability under the INA, Section 212 and Section 237. Section 212 is for people who haven't been admitted or paroled into the U.S. Now. Other than the charges under Section 212A6AI for entering the U.S. without authorization, or the Section 212A7 charge at issue in this case for applying for admission without valid documents, the Section 212 charges will rarely be the ground of removability charged by DHS and the NTA. After all, by definition, people in removal proceedings are in the U.S., MPP notwithstanding, and I'm not even going to touch it. So unless they entered without inspection, or are applying at the border and let in for removal proceedings, the non-citizens in removal proceedings aren't likely removable under the inadmissibility provisions at Section 212. Instead, they'd be removable under the provisions at Section 237, the old deportability grounds that, quite frustratingly, we also call the removal provisions. I'm sorry about that. The Section 212 charge usually comes up in the relief context. That is, for example, an LPR deemed removable under some Section 237 provision and who applies for relief but can't obtain it because the relief isn't available if the applicant falls under an inadmissibility provision. Just to complicate it all further. And to give you a base for this case. Mr. Aradia argued that the Section 212A7AII provision can't apply to him because he was, in fact, admitted and paroled into the U.S., Remember, he came as a tourist a long time ago, overstayed, and then received advance parole, left the U.S., and re-entered pursuant to the grant of advance parole? And so by definition, he was paroled into the U.S., so he argued. Meaning, according to him, if removable at all, and quite frankly, he is under Section 237A1B or perhaps A1C, he asserted that it would be under Section 237 and not Section 212 but DHS didn't charge a Section 237 removability provision in the NTA, and so the argument goes, Mr. Aradia should get to stay. 
at least until DHS amends or refiles a new NTA. Wonky fight. The IJ and the BIA found Mr. Heredia removable under the Section 212A7 charge, and the Third Circuit agreed. It explained that under the parole statute's plain text, despite Mr. Heredia's initial admission as a non-immigrant all those years ago, the subsequent lapse and his re-entry with advanced parole makes him a, quote, arriving alien, end quote, under immigration law, and therefore potentially inadmissible under Section 212A7-AII. Unless he has another visa to enter the U.S., of course. Also, the INA states quite clearly that a parole, or advanced parole, is not an admission and that when it's terminated, the non-citizen reverts back to the immigration status that they had pre-parole. Plus, what really happened here is that Mr. Eredia had an adjustment of status application pending, likely through a U.S. citizen spouse, obtained advanced parole while it was pending and left, and then USCIS eventually denied the adjustment application after he re-entered. And under the regulations, under those very circumstances, non-citizens are deemed applicants for admission. As many immigration attorneys know, admissions get very complicated and, quite frankly, require refreshers every time they come up. In so holding, that is, in holding that someone like Mr. Eredia can be treated as an arriving alien inadmissible under INA Section 212A7, the court appears to create a circuit split with the John Pratt favorite Ortiz Boucher v. Attorney General, published in the 11th Circuit in 2013. The Eighth Circuit tries to distinguish Ortiz Boucher, but I'm going to give it a gong. And on behalf of Eleventh Circuit practitioners everywhere, thank you for Ortiz Boucher, Matthew Weber. Back to the case at hand. For these reasons, the Third Circuit held that Mr. Iridia reverted back to an arriving alien after his parole expired, making him properly inadmissible under INA Section 212A7AII because he did not have another visa to remain in the United States. At the risk of going too far, let's talk about TPS. So what is the effect of all this on USCIS's relatively new position in matter of ZRZC that a non-citizen with TPS who receives and re-enters the U.S. with advanced parole has, inexplicably to me, not been, quote, inspected and admitted or paroled, end quote, for purposes of adjustment of status under INA Section 245A? Well, in this case, the Third Circuit is conducting the parole analysis under INA Section 212D5. That is, the Third Circuit believes whether someone with advanced parole has been paroled into the U.S. and whether that parole has expired is governed by Section 212d5, the generic parole provision. And if that's true, as it is, wouldn't it provide ammunition for the argument that a non-citizen returning with advanced parole has been, like all other parolees, inspected and admitted or paroled as required to adjust under Section 245a? Both regular parole and advanced parole are governed by the same statute, so why, dear colleagues, can USCIS treat the two paroles differently for adjustment of status purposes? Not only that, actually, the Third Circuit makes clear that, quote, the statute permits DHS to parole any alien applying for admission, and no other category of alien, end quote. So everyone returning with advanced parole is an arriving alien? We're getting deep into complicated weeds here, but if so, and if you can overcome matter of ZRZC, the arriving alien status would permit a TPS recipient to adjust status before USCIS, even if they have a removal order. Just saying. 
To be fair, the Third Circuit does talk about the recent USCIS TPS guidance in passing, but not in a way, at least to me, that would support USCIS's adoption of matter of ZRZC. Food for thought in the Third Circuit for you nerds still paying attention. And that is Eridia, the Attorney General of the U.S. Moving on to the Ninth Circuit, we have Ruiz Colmenares v. Garland, published on February 9, 2022. This is the first of two decisions written by Judge Van Dyke. This one's about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Ruiz Colmenares is from Mexico. He committed felonies in the U.S. and he's been removed numerous times. DHS reinstated a prior order of removal after the most recent entry, and an asylum officer found that Mr. Ruiz Colmenares had a reasonable fear of persecution or torture in Mexico, therefore placing him in withholding-only proceedings. Like all such proceedings, the matter was initiated through service of a, quote, notice of referral to an immigration judge, end quote, rather than an NTA. The notice of referral lacked the date and time of the first hearing. In proceedings, Mr. Ruiz Comaneras claimed that, quote, shortly after each of his prior three deportations, he was robbed and assaulted near the border in Tijuana, end quote. Due to his convictions, an IJ determined that he was only potentially eligible for deferral of removal under the CAT. And as described by Judge Van Dyke, it doesn't appear to be the strongest claim. The IJ and BIA denied. Perhaps because of the flurry of legal changes on the issue, Mr. Ruiz Colmenares did not allege until the petition for review stage that the IJ lacked jurisdiction over his claim due to the fact that the notice of referral to an immigration judge lacked the date and time of his initial hearing. And so, the court deemed the argument unexhausted, and so didn't address it. We must wait for another day. Addressing then the substance of the cat denial the Ninth Circuit affirmed, first it upheld the adverse credibility finding. The panel believes its review particularly deferential when it comes to adverse credibility, a holding that I'm not so sure other Ninth Circuit panels would necessarily agree with, including recent en banc panels. Anyway, the panel believed here, like the IJ and BIA, that it was telling that Mr. Ruiz Colmenares didn't mention his apparently long-held fear until his fourth unlawful entry. Also, the court believed his story, quote, evolving, end quote, and that it had the type of inconsistencies and omissions that IJs and the BIA may properly rely upon, including getting dates wrong. Now, an adverse credibility finding doesn't necessarily tank a cat claim if the country condition evidence establishes otherwise. But here that's not the case, says the Ninth. Indeed, even assuming his testimony true, the court held that the testimony of, quote, three instances of robbery that resulted in a three-day detainment in police custody and temporary bruises, none of which necessitated medical treatment, end quote, didn't amount to past torture. And even if it did, past torture is only one factor to consider with the cat. It doesn't create a presumption of future torture, as past persecution does with asylum or withholding of removal. According to the court, even if Mr. Ruiz Colmenares fears being robbed again, he didn't show a, quote, particularized risk of torture, end quote, different than that faced from all Mexican citizens. The court believed he needed to do so. And so, the Ninth Circuit denied the petition. And that is Ruiz Colmenares v. Garland. Next 
is to Zampanzi Salazar v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on February 9th, 2022. This is the second Judge Van Dyke decision, and it concerns similar issues, cat claims and deficient NTAs. Perhaps it's why the court published both on the same day. And that it involves similar facts. An individual from Mexico who has entered the U.S. unlawfully many times, has been ordered removed, who was placed in withholding-only proceedings after reinstatement, and who fears border kidnappings. It appears that the panel is trying to make a point. But, Mr. Tezampanzi Salazar doesn't have a criminal record, and his description of his kidnappings and demands for money made upon him appear more detailed than the last case discussed. And terrifying for the record. He was placed in withholding-only proceedings following reinstatement, and like in the last case, the notice of referral to an immigration judge lacked the date and time of his initial hearing. He received a follow-up notice with that information. Eventually, in his withholding-only proceedings, both he and his wife testified, and his wife was deemed credible. The IJ didn't find Mr. Tzampanzi Salazar adversely credible, but denied relief and protection. It all went up to the Ninth Circuit, which remanded in 2016 for further consideration of the CAT claim. On remand before a different IJ, and quote, even assuming the respondent testified credibly and the first kidnapping was actually committed by police, the second IJ found that the remaining CAT factors, end quote, including an ability to relocate in Mexico, prevented Mr. Sampanzi Salazar from meeting his burden. Back on appeal to the BIA in 2020, where Mr. Sampanzi Salazar made the deficient notice of referral to an immigration judge argument. That is, because it lacked the date and time of his first hearing, the IJ and BIA lacked jurisdiction over his withholding-only proceedings. The BIA rejected the argument and affirmed the CAT denial. And here, a new Ninth Circuit panel different from the 2016 case did as well. First, the deficient notice of referral argument. The issue left open in the last case? Remember the waiting for another day? Turns out that day was the same day. Mind blown. The Ninth Circuit noted that it's already rejected the argument that deficient NTAs are jurisdictional, which of course it has. And in any event, the Supreme Court's Pereira and Nis Chavez decisions regarded NTA requirements. Here, in contrast, proceedings were initiated through a notice of referral to an immigration judge, which is not governed by the INA Section 239A NTA requirements. Fair enough. No discussion about claims processing rules, though. Then, turning to the merits of the CAT claim, the Ninth Circuit really focused in on reasonable relocation. See, the court believed that Mr. Tsampansi Salazar himself testified, at least indirectly, that, quote, he could avoid any risk of future torture by relocating to his home state in central Mexico, thousands of miles from the border where the two kidnappings allegedly occurred, end quote. While Mr. Tsampansi Salazar argued that relocation wouldn't be reasonable, the panel believes that whether relocation is reasonable is something only relevant for asylum and withholding purposes. For the CAT, the panel believes it only relevant that relocation is, quote, possible, end quote. That being said, to succeed on a CAT claim, applicants need not show that relocation is, quote, factually impossible, end quote. So then what is the relocation burden for CAT applicants if the regulations require a showing only that relocation is possible, but not that an applicant need to prove it impossible, and are not limited by any principles of reasonableness? I have no idea. Putting that new Gordian knot aside, the court held that in any event, Mr. Tom Patsy Salazar hadn't shown it more likely than not that he'd be tortured if returned to Mexico, as the CAT requires. 
Same problems as in the last case. The panel doesn't believe the kidnappings and extortions constituted past torture, and in any event, past torture doesn't necessarily mean future torture. Also, the court believed that the country condition evidence supports its finding, and that Mr. Tompancy Salazar hadn't shown that he himself was at particular risk of torture. And so, the court denied the petition. To layer on to a rough week in the Ninth Circuit, the court amended its en banc decision in Tomzik v. Garland, discussed on episode 86 of the podcast, to hold that, quote, an individual's inadmissible status renders that individual's re-entry illegal for purposes of reinstatement of a prior removal order, regardless of the individual's manner of re-entry, end quote. Going back to episode 86, I'm pretty sure that the en banc court already held that, but I guess it was slightly amended. Maybe the Ninth Circuit will give us some better decisions for non-citizens next week. And that, it's Sound Patsy Salazar v. Garland. And so we come to Ojo v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on February 9th, 2022. This last bad boy is an 86-pager about asylum and particularly serious crimes, including 30 pages of dissent by Judge Menashe. Let's talk majority. Mr. Ojo is from Nigeria, entered the U.S. as a tourist in 2010, and overstayed his visa. He may have done many other things, but also in 2014, he was convicted of federal conspiracy to commit wire fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. sections 1343 and 1349 and conspiracy to knowingly possess with the intent to use unlawfully identification documents, in violation of various statutes, with a 37-month sentence of imprisonment. DHS initiated removal proceedings charging Mr. Alha as removable under INA Section 237A1B as a non-citizen who remained in the U.S. longer than permitted after admission. And Mr. Alha did do that, so he's removable. In response, he filed for asylum and related relief. As the basis, he stated that he was a Christian and that he feared the extremist Muslim group Boko Haram, and that also, police and other individuals would persecute and torture him as a criminal deportee. It appears that Mr. Ojo produced quite a bit of evidence on the criminal deportee issue, including an opinion from a Nigerian human rights lawyer and expert on its judiciary. The IJ denied asylum, finding the application untimely. It wasn't filed within one year of his entry. The IJ rejected the argument that Mr. Ojo's change in circumstances, his criminal conviction, could excuse the bar. And Boko Haram's been around for a long time, so that wouldn't excuse the one-year filing deadline either. The IJ also denied asylum as a matter of discretion due to the convictions. The IJ then found that the crimes were particularly serious and barred Mr. Ojo from non-discretionary withholding of removal. While it appears that the IJ didn't hold that the convictions were aggravated felonies, the IJ did hold that they were the type of crime that would bring the crimes within the ambit of particularly serious crimes, as matter of NAM requires when a conviction is not a per se particularly serious one. This is the whole issue discussed last week in matter of FRA. More on that later. That left only cat deferral, which the IJ also denied. The BIA affirmed denying Mr. Ojo's pro se appeal that really appeared to have been a pretty good pro se appeal. He obtained pro bono counsel and petitioned for review, and the Second Circuit reversed and remanded. Lots to talk about here, so let's get information, ladies. 
First, the one-year asylum filing deadline thing. While the Second Circuit recognizes that it can only review related questions of law or constitutional issues, like the First Circuit before at the beginning of the episode, it believed that that was met here, namely, that the agency mixed up the extraordinary circumstances and changed circumstances exceptions to the one-year filing deadline. Both will, if established, excuse the one-year filing deadline for asylum, but they're not the same thing. And indeed, under the regulations, extraordinary circumstances cannot be, quote, intentionally created by the non-citizen through his own action or inaction, end quote. But not so for changed circumstances. Those can include an applicant's own conduct, such as, say, converting to a religion, or even, as here, obtaining a conviction. That could excuse the one-year filing deadline. The IJ and the BIA denied the asylum application as untimely for this reason, by mixing up the legal standards. That is, they determined under no circumstances could a change that was created by the non-citizen, here obtaining a conviction, excuse the one-year deadline. As the Second Circuit will not uphold the agency on grounds not employed by that agency, that's the Chenry Doctrine, Remand was required, no matter what oil argued in the alternative. But wait a minute, Kevin. Didn't you say that the IJ also denied asylum as a matter of discretion? That's not an alternative reason. That's something that the agency actually did. Well, yes, but that too was flawed, as, quote, there is no indication that the IJ examined the totality of the circumstances or balanced favorable and adverse factors, end quote, as a discretionary asylum analysis requires. All the IG appears to have done was consider the criminal history, and that's not enough. Next up in formation, particularly serious crimes. Aggravated felonies with a sentence of imprisonment of five years or more are per se bars for withholding of removal. The crime here lacked the requisite imprisonment term, and appears not to have been found to be an aggravated felony, anyway. That means the analysis under matter of NAM applies. And to apply it all, the crime must first be held to have the elements that, quote, potentially bring it into a category of particularly serious crimes, end quote. Everyone always wants to jump to the facts of these crimes to make the particularly serious crime matter of NAM analysis, but that is not what is required. There is a threshold consideration of whether the elements potentially bring the crime into the category that could possibly be particularly serious. And as I mentioned last week, and as the Second Circuit says here, quote, crimes against persons are more likely to be particularly serious than are crimes against property, end quote. Indeed, until last week, I was unaware of any BIA decision holding otherwise. Anyway, the IJ here made the finding before last week, and more importantly, the IJ mistakenly believed that the conspiracy convictions were crimes against persons. Maybe so in the broad sense, but then again, I guess all crimes are in the broad sense. But as that phrase is considered crimes against persons, it really refers to violent and force-based crimes like murder, rape, and robbery, and not theft-type crimes. Wire fraud and the like are not crimes against persons. Again, that's a legal error that the IJ and BIA made in need of remand, because only after passing matter of NAM's first elements-based requirement can courts look to the overall circumstances of the crime to determine whether it's particularly serious in a given case. Have I said that enough? Okay, now to the substance of the CAT claim, which the IJ and the BIA did reach because even a particularly serious crime doesn't bar CAT deferral. 
and this analysis really regarded the criminal deportee stuff. Although the IJ and the BIA deemed the fear speculative, the IJ and the BIA also failed to consider pretty much any evidence other than Mr. Ojo's testimony, which by the way was deemed credible. Big problem when the record also has an expert report and lots of evidence. Listen up. Quote, a generalized statement that the IJ familiarized himself with the entire record of proceedings provides insufficient support to such an awareness of this particular piece of evidence under these circumstances, end quote. And even if it considered the evidence, neither the IJ nor the BIA explained why it rejected the evidence, quote, a matter as important as whether an individual should remain in the United States because his or her removal would result in torture cannot be left to speculation and judicial guesswork, end quote. Congratulations, Benjamin L. Nelson from the Monroe County Public Defender's Office for Petitioner. 86 pages in under 86 minutes. Lots of arguments and footnote with dissenting Judge Menashe. And the Second Circuit distinguished the Supreme Court's recent die decision in important ways for petitions for review, if you're in need of replying to an oil argument. No time to get into all of that now, and it's pretty in the weeds. So back to particularly serious crimes. I could be wrong, but I don't really recall the BIA explaining in a matter of FRA last week why, despite everyone, including the BIA, recognizing in this case that, quote, crimes against persons are more likely to be categorized as particularly serious crimes, end quote, the property-type crime in matter of FRA had the elements that brought it within the ambit of particularly serious crimes, as matter of NAM requires. I'd say matter of FRA is ripe for challenge in the Second Circuit. Next, the Second Circuit does something here that I too have been doing and I suggest you do as well. Using the BIA's 2020 decisions on expert testimony in matter of MAMZ and matter of JGT as swords for really making it difficult for IJs to ignore expert testimony, especially once you get your expert certified following voir dire. Do it. And to end a long episode with a good quote, the court notes that this case implicates, quote, one of the most important decisions in our legal system, namely, whether an individual has the right to remain in the United States, end quote. Indeed it does. And that is Ojo v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. 
I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.